There's a reason why they're all going. It's because Jesus, the great missionary, has come, left his comfort zone. Talk about a cross-cultural experience. There he was in the glory of the Father from eternity past, and he condescended, literally took on our flesh so as to extend himself to us. He's surely the pace setter when it comes to being on the field, if you will. And these folks have been affected by Jesus. He connected with them. He reached out to them. They accepted his offer of forgiveness and adoption. And he gave them not only salvation, but he gave them an entirely new way of life. He put his mind in them. Now they think much more than ever like he thinks. He thinks about service and sacrifice and is even willing to endure suffering for the glory of God. So they've been affected. And now they go to do the same uh, that he did in coming to us. Jesus has made a difference in their lives. We, we lift him up here in this church. We, we pray to him. We sing to him. And we read in his word. We do so because he's real. He is alive. He's risen from the dead. And he loves us. He... Uh, had one week to live on earth at a particular time, some 2,000 years ago. One week very, very deliberately spent. On one occasion, he had the famous Last Supper with his intimate followers there to prepare them for his soon departure. What a terrible thing happened. One of the 12 began to betray the Lord walked out on him at this, the Lord's Last Supper. Eleven were left. He spent the time wisely, not only teaching them, but praying for them. He prayed to the Father so that they could hear just how much he cared for them, loved them, and expected of them. Then they left the location of the upper room. They went downhill first, and then they went after crossing a famous valley, the Kidron Valley, then they, they were going uphill on uh, the Mount of Olives there to a particular place. It was not strange to the Lord. He often made recourse to it there to be alone so as to pray with the Father. It was the Garden of Gethsemane. In Hebrew, Gat Shmanim, the place of the oil press, which is so metaphorically accurate because there will be people pressing upon him. Hundreds, the Roman cohort went there. Of course, they knew where to find him. Judas helped them do so. The Roman authorities went to find him. They weren't alone. The Jewish religious authorities also were there, shamefully. They authorized their own temple police to join with the Roman government they have nothing in common, the Romans, the Jews, except a common contempt for Jesus who simply came to suffer and die, even for them. It's not right, but it happened. And there they found him after a long search. No, no, no. He came forward to them. They didn't have to search at all. They had swords and lanterns, and they were unnecessary because it was for this purpose that he came. 
He stepped forward, asked them whom they seek. They identified the one they were after, Jesus the Nazarene. I am he, said he. And they took him in chains. They bound him. And what happened next after the Garden of Gethsemane scene? There in the garden, an overzealous one of the Lord's followers, Peter, of course, lopped off the ear of one of the high priest's servants, Peter, not being a good swordsman, apparently. I think he was interested in lopping off his head, but he missed, only got his ear. Well, you don't spread the gospel with the sword. You do it as these who we love are going to do. You go with open hearts and open mouths. You share the gospel. But anyway, Peter didn't get that. Peter thought he was going to keep the Lord from dying, and yet the Lord came to die. Peter didn't quite get it. That encourages me because we don't get a lot, and yet the Lord is very patient with us. Well, after all that, the Lord healed the man, by the way, and in so doing, probably saved Peter's life at the time because the Roman authorities would surely would have taken Peter and executed him. It wasn't timely for him to do that. He had some Bible to write. And so the Lord kept him from that fate at that time. And now they're going to make their way to a different location from the Garden of Gethsemane elsewhere. Where? Well, that's exactly what we'll see tonight as we continue this Passion Week, the Lord's last week. It's in John chapter 18, verses 12 to 27. And we will read what happened next. Here's what it says, verse 12. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first. What an irony. Jesus came to lead them to the Father for forgiveness, but they are intent on leading him to the high Jewish priest for judgment. Sinful men, if you can grab hold of this, are leading holy God to his death. But they're only able to do so because all along this holy God, Jesus, came for this purpose, to die even for them. And so the text says they led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. What's going on here? Well, according to Jewish custom, the high priest's office was for life. Annas was the high priest, but no longer is. Why? In spite of Jewish tradition, Romans who occupied and governed the land at the time, Romans did not like the centralization of power in one man. And they felt the Jewish high priest, if he served for life, would have too much power. And so they regularly, arbitrarily replaced one with another. That's what happened. So Annas has been replaced by Caiaphas, but there's a family relationship, as you see. Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who the text says was high priest that year. Don't misunderstand. It doesn't mean Caiaphas was priest only for that year. It means this is quite a striking, significant year. It's the year of the Lord's execution. And during that key time in redemptive history, Caiaphas was serving as high priest. 
You and I are going to see that the Lord is put on trial six times. We'll see him move from place to place and person to person as folks put the Lord of all on trial. First, he's brought to Annas. Then he will be brought to stand and be judged by Caiaphas. And then the Sanhedrin. Here, by the way, if you take a look at this, are steps discovered in Israel. These would be the very steps the Lord would have walked on in uh, chains as he was brought to the home of Caiaphas. That is the way. And since the Jewish people in the land were now under Roman occupation and rule, they had to work through the Roman uh, courts. They were not allowed to carry out the death penalty themselves. They had no such authority. It must be done by a Roman official, oh, like someone named Pontius Pilate, for instance. And so the Lord will be subjected to a series of two kinds of trials, religious and civil. The Jews will take care of the religious trials, the Romans, the civil trials. And so you got religion and you got government all getting together to impose themselves on the Prince of Peace. Now Annas, who we're reading about, was very rich. In fact, there was a place, you know of it, in the temple precincts known as the Court of the Gentiles. That's as far, that's as close to the temple as in that day Gentiles could go. In the court of the Gentiles were set up money changers and other proprietors who would sell animals to be offered in sacrifice at the temple. People coming from all over the world would not have the right money to provide there in tax and tribute, and so they'd have to exchange money. And the uh, Money exchangers there would charge terrible amounts of interest. So do those selling animals for sacrifice would exploit the people who are there to worship Almighty God at the temple. And that very area was one which so offended the Lord that once he went and overturned the tables of the money changers. Here, for instance, you'll see a kind of an artist's depiction of the scene. The Lord went there. He was very, his anger was righteous and controlled at all time. Look how these um, uh, money grubbers were causing people to stumble. And so the Lord was quite upset. Now this area where it all took place was known as the bazaars of Annas. He ran it. That's how he got rich. He exacted a percentage of the money, the profits made by those who were selling animals and uh, charging way too much for the exchange of money. They filled the coffers of Annas and this radical rabbi Jesus interfered with the profit margin of Annas. You can bet that's one of the reasons why Annas required this Rabbi Yeshua, Jesus, to first come before him. He was threatened economically and was not happy with Jesus at all. And so the Lord is taken first to this Annas, brought to his residence, 
You might find that odd, but it wasn't in those days because the priest's residence was also used to conduct official business. The way it worked was that there was a courtyard, rooms, uh, domiciles around it. It was Roman fashion. Uh, that was the style of Roman construction. So this wasn't unusual at all. Now Caiaphas, verse 14, was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. That refers us back to what happened in John chapter 11. Lazarus died. Jesus undied him. Nobody could just do that. Jesus did. And the Jewish people were amazed. And the Jewish religious leaders were threatened. Uh, because it looked like the populace might now switch loyalties from traditional Judaism to radical Rabbi Jesus and follow him instead. Not only would that offend the Jews, it would call the attention of the Roman uh, governmental leaders. They may be threatened by this imagined insurrection by this radical rabbi. And so they were nervous. What are we going to do? And Caiaphas intervened. And in John chapter 11, verse 47 and on, we read, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Unwittingly, he was a prophet. Because one did die in place of all. He misunderstood the whole thing. But based on Caiaphas' suggestion, let's just do away with this Rabbi Jesus and then the nation will be saved. Based on that, from that point on, the Jewish religious leaders, shamefully, it pains me even to say this, but it's true, were determined to capture and execute Jesus, their own Messiah. Now verse 15, Simon Peter was following Jesus. And so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. What's the name of the unnamed other disciple? Well, you see, we don't know. Who is he? Only speculation. Most believe it was John himself. Others say, no, it was uh, Nicodemus, perhaps, or... Who knows? Maybe Joseph of Arimathea. We don't know. We're not told. However, Peter is there. Verse 16. But Peter was standing at the door outside. And so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. I guess he thought he was doing Peter a favor, but as you will see, he didn't. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, Peter said, I am not. 
Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made, it's in the courtyard, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves, and Peter was also with them. He shouldn't have been there. Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. So it could get kind of cold in Jerusalem. It's elevated. It's on the edge of a desert. When the sun goes down, it could get quite cold and windy. And so it would not be unusual for this charcoal fire to have been provided for those out there in the courtyard to warm up to. So while the Lord simultaneously is being interrogated harshly, cruelly by his own, by Annas, Peter is standing in the courtyard warming himself up by the fire. And he is being interrogated at exactly the same time as the Lord is here for instance, is an artist's depiction of Peter being asked if he was one of Jesus' disciples. Peter, of course, answered, oh, no, oh, no, 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 I am not. And this is really quite amazing because you recall Peter with way too much self-confidence, even arrogance, earlier on had made a bold statement, didn't he? To the Lord, it was at the Last Supper the Lord was telling his disciples soon he will leave them. And in John chapter 13, if you recall, uh, beginning in verse 36, we read, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly. Amen, amen. That's what that means. I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. It's very, very dangerous to think more of yourself than you is. <sighs> Jesus had Peter pegged. Peter didn't understand him and now you see uh, the first of Peter's three denials, just as the Lord predicted. And so the high priest, verse 19, then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his, and about his teaching. Now Caiaphas was, as I mentioned, actually the high priest now, but Annas continued to be referred to that way in the same sense in which a, a person who once was president is for life, referred to as president, or a military general is always addressed for life, even after his term of service as general. Uh, so, so it's Caiaphas who's actually the high priest, not Annas, but Annas is still, out of respect, referred to as high priest. In this passage, written by John, of course, we can see that he's telling us about two interrogations. It's the last week of the Lord, and it involves two interrogations, and they happen simultaneously in and John, the writer, under inspiration in a very brilliant way, is weaving the two together. We're in and out, one interrogation or the other. The interrogation of Peter is being done by a slave girl. And at the same time, the interrogation of the Lord is being conducted by Annas, the high priest. They're taking place simultaneously. And John cleverly is weaving the two events together in the text in order to show us a stark contrast between the two, you see, the Lord's response to his interrogation was victorious. But Peter's response was sheer and utter failure. 
And so the two are juxtaposed for our understanding. Jesus answered in verse 20, answered the high priest. The high priest said, tell me about your disciples. Tell me about your teaching. Jesus said, I've spoken openly in the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. And and I spoke nothing in secret. Um, His was not an esoteric teaching, a mysterious, secretive dogma made known only to the initiates of these secret rites. No, what the Lord taught in public was no different than what he said in private. Christianity is not a secretive faith system. There are organizations, perhaps some of you belong to, are like that. Only the initiates are made privy to the secrets. I don't want to be part of that. If you don't got a message fit for public dissemination, you ain't fit for me. Well, the Lord Jesus had a message for all people. And so he's calling the, uh, the inconsistency of the high priest into view. Why are you asking me about what I taught? It wasn't in secret. I taught in your synagogues. I taught in your, I taught in your temple. In verse 21, he continues, why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. Do you know that Jew- Jewish principles of jurisprudence required the presence of witnesses before uh, one allegedly uh, convicted of some wrongdoing was put on trial. You need not have testified against, you don't have to incriminate yourself. The witnesses have to come forward first. But look at this. Principle of Jewish jurisprudence violated. We'll get witnesses later. Let's just go after the accused first. And so the Lord points out this inconsistency in verse 22. When he had said this, uh, you see one of the officers standing nearby, look at this, struck Jesus, saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? (laughs) He struck the high priest, the real one, for what he did to the fake one. See the word struck? In Greek, um, we know it was a slap with an open hand. Has that ever happened to you? Has anyone slapped you in the face? It's humiliating. It's it's very degrading. Dehumanizes you. It's an insult. That's what happened here. Imagine it, folks, a horrific slap in the face of Almighty God. Long before the excruciating pain of the cross, the Lord endured a humiliation the likes of which probably none of us ever will. He was serious about suffering in our place. Jesus answered him in verse 23, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? They could not accuse him of lying, so they struck him for telling the truth. So Annas, verse 24, sent him now bound to Caiaphas, second trial, the high priest. Parallel accounts by other gospel writers tell us that Jesus, after being tried by Annas, was 
uh, then sent to Caiaphas, and the council. So what is the council? Folks, it's a reference to the Sanhedrin, what, which was the ancient Supreme Court of Israel. It consisted of 71 members appointed for life, and I'm dying to use my gizmo, so here we go again. This is an idea of how they met. They met in the temple precincts in a place called the Court of Yun Stone. That's where they met. There were 71 of them. Here are 35 on this side, 35 on this side, that's 70, and the one presiding, the high priest, makes 71. In this case, it would have been Caiaphas. Two recording clerks took their place here. The accused stood before this semi-circle to be tried. Over here were places for students, maybe religious students or law students to learn how to do it, so to speak. So he was brought now before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was not supposed to meet at night, according to Jewish jurisprudence. Why? They didn't have wonderful illumination as we do today. Therefore, they didn't want to risk making the wrong decisions about the evidence submitted. A person's life was at stake. Therefore, they didn't meet at night. Yeah, but they did in the case of the Lord. They had another rule. They would not pronounce a sentence of death on the same day the trial concluded. They wanted to give it some time because that's a rather irreversible penalty. And so as to be just and to make sure they didn't make a mistake, they would separate the final verdict from its being carried out by a day or two, but, but not in the case of the Lord Jesus. Furthermore, witnesses were very, very important. A person couldn't be convicted of a capital crime without the presence of credible witnesses. And, well, they were quite frustrated. They couldn't find any. And so we read in Matthew 26, verse 59 and forward, now the chief priest and the whole council, the Sanhedrin, kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. Many, I volunteer, I'll lie about this, Jesus, what do I care? But they were not credible. Their testimony was inconsistent. And so I feel so bad how frustrating it must have been for the Sanhedrin members. You see, they couldn't even get reliable testimony against Jesus. Folks, here's the point. Our Lord was not given a fair trial. There is no injustice you and I have or will ever experience that comes close to the injustice he experienced. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and so they said to him, you, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he, he denied it and said, second time, I am not. What our Lord endured, he endured alone, without comfort and without consolation. There was nobody there. Peter even denied him. In fact, we can see that during the Lord's hour of need, he was mistried and denied 
That's what his life experience was. In fact, the aloneness at this critical time experienced by the Lord in his trials and in his suffering is anticipated, I think, in Psalm 69, verse 20, which says, Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found None. That's what our Lord experienced even before the cross. Well, verse 26, one of the slaves of the high priest, this is interesting, being a relative of the one who, whose ear Peter cut off. Can you imagine that? Malchus is the name of the guy. Anyway, this slave, who's a relative of Malchus, stepped up and said to Peter, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter then denied it again. And immediately a rooster crowed. And so the prophecy of Jesus uttered in John 13 was now fulfilled. Three times you will deny me, Peter, before a cock crows once. And now something very powerful and impactful happened. It is recorded in Luke's account of this event. It occurred as the Lord, now bound was being under heavy guard, walked from Annas's place uh, through the courtyard on the way to Caiaphas's home, on his way there to stand before Caiaphas. Here is what Luke says about what's going on. It's in Luke chapter 22, verses 61 and 62. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now you can see it happening, because remember, Peter is in the courtyard, warming himself by the fire. The Lord is being escorted through the same courtyard. Their eyes meet, the Lord's and Peter's. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Hmm. The Lord looked at Peter. He did not call out to Peter. You see, if he did that, he would have exposed him, maybe even shamed him. That wasn't his goal. He didn't do that. He merely looked at Peter. Their eyes met, if you can imagine it. And even without words, a lot was communicated. Peter's eyes met the Lord's, and I think... Instantly he realized, you know me, Lord, better than I know myself. In my arrogance, pride, and self-sufficiency, I declared I would never deny you. And here I am doing that very thing. And now Peter sees the sad fulfillment of the Lord's prediction of his denials. And, and how does this affect Peter? Well, Luke tells us he went out and wept bitterly. And now, interestingly, Peter has something in common with Judas, doesn't he? Judas betrayed the Lord. Now, Peter denied the Lord. And this also they have in common. Both of their sins, the sins of Judas and the sin of Peter, both of their sins were forgivable. But, whereas Peter accepted the Lord's forgiveness, repented, was broken, wept the tears of repentance, whereas Peter accepted the Lord's forgiveness, Judas did not. He hanged himself on a tree 
unwilling to accept the fact that the Lord himself would be impaled on a tree, even for him. Peter wept the tears of repentance and continued walking. He wept and he, and he walked with the Lord. And Isn't that helpful for you and I? For we have also failed and denied the Lord in one way or the other. Perhaps not as dramatically and famously as did Peter, but denial nonetheless. How are we going to deal with it? Well, I hope like Peter, not like Judas, we can fail. But the Lord stands willing to forgive and to restore us as Peter. This is not the end of Peter's life nor his relationship with the Lord. In fact, after the Lord was crucified and entombed, there was a day when ladies went to visit that tomb. It's the tomb in which Jesus' body, whom they loved, had been previously laid to rest. Well, when they went, they found the tomb, as you know, to be empty. There they found an angel of the Lord who said to them, it's recorded in Mark 16, he said, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He, he, he is not here. And then in verse 7 of Mark 16, the angel said to the ladies, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Wow, love and forgiveness from the mistreated, humiliated, slapped, betrayed, denied, and crucified Lord. Those words tell his disciples and Peter gave Peter hope. He was still counted among them. He turned from his Lord, but his Lord would never turn from him. Peter failed but he's still one of the Lord's disciples. He denied the Lord, but the Lord still considered him his own. How do you deal with your failures? Me, mine. How do we deal with them like Judas? Too proud to accept the Lord's substitutionary death for our sin? Or like Peter, yes, we weep. The tears of repentance and then we run to the Lord. Judas decided he had to crucify himself, punish himself, turn it all on himself. Too proud to believe Jesus would be his sin substitute. But Peter wept and then fully accepted the Lord's forgiveness. Not long before she died in 1988, Marganita Lasky, she was a well-known secular humanist, said... What I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. She could have. Judas could have. Who do you have to forgive you? Jesus stands willing to cast all our sins behind his back. He takes no pleasure in us, heaping guilt and shame, condemnation, and punitive action upon ourselves. What he did, he concluded with these words. It's finished. It's enough. It's paid in full. It's only human pride that says, no, it's not. I must add to it. Don't do that. We will fail. How do you deal with it? I hope you weep. I hope I weep. 
Yet I hope we keep walking. Weep the tears of repentance and yet then by faith keep walking with the Lord who will not let us go and who will forgive us and who will one day come for us, his disciples, along with all the rest of the disciples. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Put your name in there. If you've been redeemed by the Lord, you're his irreversibly and forevermore. I have no way to explain this. It's counterintuitive. I think it can only be explained by two words, amazing grace. How else do you explain? It's amazing grace with which we'll close. Could I ask you to stand to your feet? Let's, uh, let's sing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Have you ever heard of this hymn before? That saved a wretch like me. I once, that's past, was lost, but now found. Used to be blind. Oh, no. But now I see. I see Jesus impaled on the cross, and then I see an empty tomb. And I see my failures, which when brought to the foot of the cross, I see my sins, which when brought to the foot of the cross, meet with the Lord's forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. And I see how Peter dealt with his horrific failures in the way I wish to deal with mine. Weep for sure, repent, and run into the forgiving arms of the Lord Jesus. It's all a matter of amazing grace. Let's sing this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was, but now. Listen, God bless you folks. On the way out are people willing to meet with you. So that in the face of your failures, you have a different choice. You don't have to deal with your failures, your sins, your flaws, your shortcomings the way Judas did. You can find out how to do it the way Peter did. Stop by. It's called the Connection Center. There are people waiting for you now. God bless you. We look forward to seeing you on Sunday.